Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we seek to explore how beliefs are shaping our world, our culture, our politics, as well as the rituals that give us a sense of meaning. Rituals like bidding a year goodbye. As we begin 2021 and our first episode of the year, we felt it fitting to take inspiration from that traditional folk song, Old Lang Sane, played on New Year's Eve when the clock strikes midnight. Robert Burns' iconic song is about reflection and helps us bid farewell with lines that remind us to remember old times and where we're coming from. This week, producer Kimberly Winston sets out to talk with a diverse group of faith and spiritual leaders who reflect on where we have been, how we have changed, and where we may be headed. I think we can all agree it has been a year. As I write this, more than 330,000 Americans have died of COVID-19, including a friend of mine. And I am recording this in Northern California, where several counties around me have zero available ICU beds. It's been hard to find meaning or purpose in such times. And fortunately, that's not my job. It is the job of clergy, theologians, and other people who think deeply about religion and the nature of faith. So I asked them. You know, there's certainly an old adage that says, may you live in interesting times. That's Rabbi Neil Blumoff, head of a conservative synagogue in Austin, Texas. Like everyone I spoke to, his house of worship is shuttered and all activities have moved online. And that, he says, has led to new insight into what it means to be part of a Jewish community. So it's, a, it's an existential question of what are we doing here in the first place? Are we here to maybe check off ritual moments and not immerse in their meaning and their sense of uh, wonder that they can offer for us? Or are we here to recognize that this community is a greater good and allows us to be better able to pivot towards all that which is in our world? And hopefully we continue to build on the practice that we are recognizing the unshakability of the community and the necessity of the community as well. And it it gives us not a honeymoon per se, but it gives us a fresh chance and fresh outlook to look at things differently with wonder, with hope and aspiration. We don't shy away from the real suffering that people have, of course, but rather than be overwhelmed by our existence, our challenges, our insecurities, I think doubling down on a sense of hope and a sense of the power of what community can do is an urgent need at this time. Emily Scott is a Lutheran pastor who serves two congregations in Baltimore. While her congregations strain under the pandemic, they have also tapped into an unusual practice. I think it's one of our most important spiritual practices. And my ministry right now takes place in the midst of um, an LGBTQ rooted community. And resilience is actually a practice and a a value, I would say, that's right at the heart of the LGBTQ community. It's something that we've learned to 
um, to practice and engage in because the world around us has not always seen us as enough or as valuable or even as, you know, against God's wishes. And so that sense of being able to kind of, I want to say sort of like send deep roots into your well of knowledge that you in fact are good and of God and to kind of keep finding joy in the midst of hardship is one that is incredibly integral to the LGBTQ community historically and now. One thing I've seen really beautifully is the way that the more secure members of the community have offered help and companionship to those who are more vulnerable. And I think that's a practice of resilience of kind of saying, um, even as I myself am struggling, I can kind of reach and be part of this community to help all of us be more resilient together. I think we saw that a life of Torah and Mitzvot, a Jewish life, is not something that can be outsourced to a synagogue. It has to be something that each person, each individual takes ownership of in his or her own personal life, that the quarantine home is as much a location where a Jewish life can happen and must happen as the synagogue. That's Chicago Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. While many religious groups have taken their Sabbath worship online, his congregation cannot. They are orthodox and refrain from technology and anything else that looks like work, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. An awareness of what our ancestors have experienced, their suffering, their hardships, can build resilience. Most of our families in our community, we have you know, a grandparent or great-grandparents who survived the Holocaust or hardship in Soviet Russia or, you know, or, or you know, fled uh, the Tsar's army you know, in the 19th century and passed along those stories to future generations. And you know, compared to those types of hardships, compared to you know, spending three years in a bunker in, a, in the Polish countryside during the Second World War, you know, what we're struggling through is really quite you know, not, not nearly, not, not even approximately as challenging. And, and I don't think that's not, that's not meant to make us feel callous toward you know, suffering and we're, we're going through this very, very hard. But I think we can have some confidence in knowing that, you know, in living memory, our grandparents and you know, great-grandparents survived much worse. And, and so we can survive this too. I also called Varun Soni, Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. USC is in Los Angeles the current epicenter of COVID-19 deaths. Sony, who is Hindu, has the difficult task of helping college kids navigate through the pandemic. Many are tuning in online to the university's faith programs at rates of up to four times higher than before. This is the first real shared global experience of suffering we've gone through, uh, probably since World War II, in, in a way that everyone is impacted uh, in some way or another across the world. When people go through those kinds of challenges, they they go back to faith. You know, we saw an explosion of interest in people returning back to their, to their faith communities. They might not have gone to mass in a long time. This is the year they might have gone to mass online. This is the year they might have attended a Bible study, having not done so. Uh, the language of religion emerges during crisis, and it can be a powerful protective factor because it gives people a community and a place in the world and a sense of order in the disorder. It gives people something to look forward to. It gives people hope at a time when we have seemingly little to look forward to. And so I do see that faith or religion is hardwired into us in some way or another. It is a human expression of, of suffering. And in times of great suffering, 
people go back to faith to make sense of it. And so I did see that. Drew Hart is a theologian at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Hart works at the intersection of religion and race and says last summer's murder of George Floyd revealed that we are actually in the grip of a double pandemic of COVID and systemic racism. And it was interesting when when everything began to shut down, I was thinking like, oh, I guess you know, this will be on hold for a while. But what actually ended up happening was the opposite. More churches than have been have opened themselves up to hear the stories of others and to enter into the pain of others. And, and so it, there was actually something really beautiful happening um, that I think gets lost in a real reality, which is that many faith communities dug their heels in. But below that surface, there's also another story, another narrative that I think sometimes gets missed of um, communities that actually really wanted to love their neighbors, right? Um, communities that actually were trying to hear and seek to understand and to grow and to be transformed as a people and to find new practices, right? New ways of living moving forward, a new America that's emerging, um, that has more space for difference and plurality. Um, and, and it is trying to find a way uh, for a society that can thrive amongst the vast differences that we have in society. From her pulpit in Baltimore, Reverend Emily Scott sees something similar. I'm certainly no expert in historical movements or social change, but I think there's a sense during this time that something has really been uncovered about what is broken in our society. And we've kind of known that and been able to sort of, you know, waltz along. Those of us who have a certain set of privileges have been able to ignore it for a little while, but I think there's been this deepening sense of unease and a deepening level of discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots. And I just think it's just becoming so clear, first of all, that we're all connected. The pandemic has really showed us that (laughs) we are fundamentally connected to each other. We can't be in the world without um, the risk of spreading this disease to one another. And we've seen it go through the globe, which shows us how connected we are to each other globally, but also that a large majority of the American people are struggling in some major way, whether it's with systemic racism or poverty or joblessness. And my hope is that that sort of revelation, that revealing of where we are as a nation will inspire a really deep set of changes. Some themes are emerging from this virtual roundup, that faith can help us tap into resilience, can help us make sense of the senseless, and can bring us into community at a time when we are most isolated. So I asked a contrarian's question, where has faith failed us in this pandemic? Varun Soni, the USC chaplain, says faith has not been there to help us collectively process the loss of so many and so much. We haven't haven't actually been able to memorialize what we've been going through. I think one of the reasons why there's this unresolved underlying grief and loss that many people are carrying with them in ways that they haven't fully honored or affirmed is because we're going through the fourth largest mass casualty event in American history. 300,000 Americans have died in the last eight months. And yet there's been no national moment of remembrance. There's been no national moment of memorialization. There's been no liturgical event. There's been no day of rest. There's been nothing that honors the immense grief and pain and tragedy we're going through. That has traditionally been the role of religion. And In the absence of those kinds of rituals, it's hard for us to fully comprehend what we're going through. Now we're going through it 
So it's hard also to comprehend something as you go through it. And there will be a time when we're post-pandemic reflecting upon it. But I do wish that we had more um, people, and especially religious and spiritual people, in the public sphere, in the public discourse, talking about the need to ritualize, memorialize, and honor the pain that we've just gone through. I think where I've watched faith fall short is when we're not being like connecting faith to the reality of people's lives. That's Becky Eldridge. She is a Catholic spiritual director who manages a vast online community from her home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Her ministry, she says, is to help people bring God to what she calls the real of their lives, their real pain, their real suffering, and their real anger in different faith communities, we can sometimes brush past it to kind of get to almost an an optimism versus really offering people hope. And I always tell people, you know, hope to me is not being naive. It's not being ignorant. It's not putting our head in the sand like an ostrich, but it's naming the reality of what what we're holding, right? And right now we are holding global suffering. So it's giving people permission to feel what they're feeling and helping them kind of put name to what they're feeling, what they're going through, and then helping them know that God meets us in this. That in a lot of ways, I feel like we're running into our spiritual poverty that we all at some point, I think in our life, will run into that moment where we realize we're lacking something. It's right there in our spiritual poverty that God most seeks to come dwell and draw near to us. So that's just something that gives me personally great comfort to, again, to know that God sees what I see, feels what I feel, hears what I hear, and continues to seek to draw near to me in it and to near to all of us in it. There's great comfort for me in knowing that I don't have to hold on to hope by myself, that there's a power greater than me that is helping me hold on to hope. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back continuing the conversation with religious leaders, exploring the question of how this year has changed us, what we have learned, and how we can look towards the future. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. 
And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining us, producer Kimberly Winston continues her roundup with a diverse group of spiritual and faith leaders from around the country. Let's get back to Kimberly as she tackles one of the hardest questions many struggle with, how to believe in a world full of suffering. In this unprecedented year, I have been wrestling daily with the idea of a benevolent God who can allow so much suffering. This is a problem theologians call theodicy, the problem of reconciling great evil in the world with a God who loves and cares for us. I am certainly not the first to grapple with it, but it is one of the perks of my profession that when I am struggling with a matter of faith, I get to call professionals who can, hopefully, help me work through it. There are questions that probably don't have an answer that would satisfy everyone. It depends in some ways on your conception of God and what you think about God. Different faith traditions think about God in different ways. That's Varun Soni, the Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. He offers up a twist on Fred Rogers' famous answer to the question, that when you want to know where God is in a tragedy, look at the helpers. For me as a Hindu, the way I think about God is that um, God is inside of us, not outside of us. And so where is God? Where is God in the pandemic? Uh, For me, God is in the work that all of us do in response to the pandemic. You know, God is in the first responders. God is in the research scientists who moved a vaccine process from 10 years to 10 months. God is in the people who are on the streets caring for each other. God is in the protesters on the streets advocating for justice. God is in the way we serve each other. So if we are looking for God in the midst of the chaos, what I would encourage people to do is look inside. How is God working through you? How are you serving God by serving others? If God is in all of us, then the way we serve God is by serving others. And then the way that God works in the world is by working through us. Drew Hart, the Messiah College theologian who works at the intersection of religion and race, rejects the notion of a deity who works behind a curtain with a master plan. That can't be my starting point, right? The kind of easy answer is, oh, God is just there, and God is making everything happen, and whatever happens, God is doing it for a reason, and all that. Those are unsatisfactory if you actually care about the disproportionate suffering that goes on among those who are most vulnerable in our world. And so for me, Instead of understanding God as this kind of puppet master over the world that's pulling all the moves, right, and and making things happen or the blueprints, right, for everything that happens in the world, I don't think of God in that way. What if instead God is active as a spirit that comes alongside human beings, especially those who are most vulnerable, not puppeting creation, 
but coming alongside and encouraging people to persevere, encouraging people to love, encouraging people to to link arms together, to move towards shalom and to to struggle for justice most meaningfully. I think God is at work rather in the cracks and edges and margins of society and where we find people, again, finding the courage to stand up and speak up and, and struggle for justice. That's where I think God is at work. Reverend Emily Scott tells me she finds a compassionate God in the teachings of liberation theology, which emphasize social justice and the poor. Her God, she tells me, is a God of restoration, not in control of our choices, but there to restore us in the midst of great suffering. I see God coming close to be alongside us in pain and desolation. God has particular concern for those who have been left behind by the world or those who have been left on the outside. Um, I think God shows up in those places in particular. So even in the midst of incredible strife, incredible conflict, incredible losses, God still makes the choice to come and be alongside us. And unfortunately, that's not the same thing as taking the pain away or ending the suffering. And that's a sort of difficult truth that at least I as a Christian sort of am always holding in tension. <laughs> yeah, with the, the knowledge of God next to me um, is not the same thing as God making me happy or ending my pain, but still that sense of presence and that possibility of restoration is a promise that, that is always kind of waiting to unfold. For me, the suffering of this pandemic, it's about human choices and how we have responded and made use of God's gifts to us uh, and especially God's freedom that, you know, the freedom that God bestowed to us to make choices of you know, righteous choices or evil choices. That's David Wolkenfeld, an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago. We have that freedom. That's the dignity of humanity, that we have the capacity to choose good or evil. And I think it's exhibited in this COVID crisis in such a poignant way. The utter failure of our ability to take care of one another in the meantime, right? The vaccine was there. We just, all we had to do was take care of each other for a few months, right? Uh, this could have been, been avoided. So I don't think it's fair to blame God for for our failure to build a civilization, sustain a civilization that can handle that task. And so the disconnect is so striking, right, between our capacity for technological brilliance, right, lightning speed innovation and life-saving technology, but without the corresponding solidarity and social cohesion to help us get through this unscathed. Becky Eldridge, the Catholic spiritual director, tells me about some teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius imagines what the Christian Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were thinking in the moments before the incarnation of Jesus. Imagine as they were gazing down upon the world the moment before Jesus became human, and what they saw were people laughing and crying, people both being born and dying. They saw the joy. They saw the suffering. They saw people undernourished. They saw aimless people killing all the things. And every time I read those words, I think that could be written today, right, in 2020, like the same fullness of life, all of the... (laughs) the fullness of joy, the fullness of sorrow, 
and everything in between. And it was in that that they came to dwell in the person of Jesus. I came to be part of that and drew as close as possible to our humanity. And it's something that I just keep coming back to this year, right? There's something very comforting to me to go, that fullness of humanity is what Jesus came to enter. And they're still seeking to draw near to all of it here, the fullness of who we are. So in terms of, you know, how does God allow all of this? I don't have a great, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just one and done answer. But what I know is that God sees all of it, that God seeks to draw near to us in it. What if those answers are not enough? They weren't for me. But then Rabbi Neil Blumoff, leader of a conservative synagogue in Austin, turned my question on its head. I don't know for me that knowing or understanding is my first priority. Because I I don't know, and there's so many things I don't know, so many things about how the world works. So how does Judaism help us? To me, as a wisdom tradition, the very first lesson I try to teach my students is that Judaism privileges the questions more than the answers. And to, to make peace with the fact that we may not actually get the answers that will satisfy us, or if they satisfy us, they're only going to satisfy us for a moment or two like candy. So to actually recognize the difficulties of the system and to work like hell to try to make the system better with our very lives. That's, I guess, the best I could hope for. I think that's a great way to say it. Being in that wrestling, as you just said beautifully, I think is the best that we can, is the privilege, actually, that we can do. Sometimes we're going to you know, find a good move that gets us in the advantage, and sometimes we're going to be overwhelmed by the sheer power of what we are wrestling. So we continue to wrestle. And for the faith leaders I spoke to for this roundup, the world's faith traditions have a lot of wisdom that can help us recover from our pain in the new year and beyond. For theologian Drew Hart, that means a return to the basics of his Christian faith, starting with the practice of confession. Confession for our collective role in the systemic racism revealed by the pandemic. Confession is just to, to name the, the ways over the centuries, as well as recent history, that people of faith, and I'm going to say Christians in particular, and I'll go even more specific and say the majority of the white church has played a role in creating, constructing, and perpetuating white supremacy in this land, right? So that's the first step is just owning that, not dodging it, not denying it, not getting defensive about it, just speaking truthfully and confessing that reality. Second, then, is repentance, right? It's the decision that I'm going to live differently. You own it, and you say, I'm going to make a change. Repentance is more than just being sorry about something, but it's actually the change itself. It's actually the action of turning in the other direction. And then it's enhancing and growing and deepening new ways of being in the world, right? New life so that we become new people. So my hope is that we could take our own faith more seriously. Certainly the life of Jesus could help us be better neighbors with our brothers and sisters in the broader community as well. If we actually took those postures, those basic Christian practices seriously, I think we would be in a much better place 
to have conversation around um, where we've been, the harm that has been caused, and can help us organize on the ground at the grassroots level towards um, a more flourishing society in our, in our neighborhoods. In Baltimore, where she leads two Lutheran congregations, Emily Scott says faith communities should re-examine their resources from different angles and in creative ways. Many of us have resources that are underutilized. So it might be saying, you know, we're only in our building once or twice a week. What can happen in this building that can bring justice to our neighborhood? And that could be a tutoring center. It could be free internet access for students who are studying. It could be that the congregation sanctuary gets used as a homeless shelter or a job center. So much has changed already. We might as well just keep going instead of trying to get back to what used to be and think much more creatively about what we can do with the resources that we have. I do believe as people of faith, we have a role here. And part of it is about being a voice of hope. That's Becky Eldridge again, the Catholic spiritual director in Baton Rouge. I think being witnesses of hope, and again, that is not naive. I think sometimes we throw that word hope around so much that it, it comes across like a an optimism. Hope is that there's something else on the horizon. There's a different way of seeing possibilities. And so one of the things I think role of faith and those of us as people of faith is to keep reminding ourselves and others that this is not the end, right? That there is, God's going to help us reimagine life, reimagine what is possible, reimagine that out of our suffering, that good can be born, that we can take some of the things we learned and, you know, hopefully it'll make us more compassionate. Maybe we'll have a better understanding that we are connected to each other, that it'll birth more kindness and generosity and gentleness. But Varun Soni of USC has a different take entirely. Instead of thinking about how traditional faith practices can bring recovery in the new year, he proposes employing what he calls spiritual technologies. And why do I call them spiritual technologies? Because things like prayer and ritual and pilgrimage and congregational singing and contemplative practice, they have been tried and tested for hundreds and thousands of years. There's been a hypothesis, they've been tested, they've been altered, they've been sort of verified, and they endure because these practices work for people. Now the science tells us about not just the spirituality of ritual, but the science of ritual, the science of mindfulness, the science of gratitude, but spiritual practitioners have known about those outcomes for thousands of years. We don't have to have faith that ritual is powerful. We don't have to have faith that prayer is powerful or transformative. We don't have to have faith that community is important. Those are technologies that have been tested over time. And so where I think religious practitioners and leaders can be leaders in the post-pandemic world is to revisit those technologies like ritual, like congregational worship, like contemplative practice, and to reimagine them for a new day. I think the problem that we get stuck with is the idea of tradition, that everything has to be the way it always was. But rituals that are now old were once new. This is the time to reimagine rituals. What is the new ritual that emerges for a new generation that's gone through a new crisis? What are the new prayers, the new songs, the new kinds of communities, the new worldviews, the new principles, the new pillars of well-being? We don't have to just mine our ancient wisdom of the past. We can 
take the timeless aspects of our faith traditions and reimagine what they look like in a timely way. That's the act of creative reinterpretation. That's what I hope faith leaders feel empowered to do right now and then through 2021. That was Varun Soni, Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California, speaking with producer Kimberly Winston. Coming up, Sony and other members of this week's Roundup share prayers, rituals, and the spiritual practices that sustain them as they're moving into a new year. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, this week, producer Kimberly Winston is talking to a roundup of faith leaders from across traditions from around the country. Earlier leaders described the learning and strategies that help them cope with suffering and put into perspective all the events of 2020. Now she turns to a different question. What are the prayers and spiritual practices that sustain these leaders as they begin a new year? She begins by posing that question to Rabbi Neil Blumoff. You know, the joke would be, as in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, may 2021 keep the czar or the corona or the king far away from us, right? You know, that's that's for fun, but I, I think that the opportunity in the prayer that I would have specifically, and I do really appreciate spontaneous prayers, actually, is that it gives us a, a new chance to see who we are and not to try to just whittle down the time because we don't know what else to do, but to really take this time in contemplation and really think about who we are and what we can and could be doing with our time and with our energies that we have remaining to us. Because I think more than anything, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Psalms says, rejoice in this day and be glad in it. This is the day that God has made. And the fact that we have just this time, I think hopefully, as we realize all of the other issues that you've named that are still in our world, including climate and other things that we have to work on, that it gives us a softer sense of purpose to be with each other without trying to capture a winner-take-all attitude. When I ask Drew Hart of Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, what prayer or rituals might serve us well in 2020, he plants himself firmly in his role as a theology professor and gives me an assignment. To learn from the faith of those who developed their faith in the crucible of suffering. Read the slave narratives. Listen to the spirituals. Read, you know, I think the letter from Birmingham jail ought to be a part of the canon. I guess what I'm getting at is that there's this traditions from the underside that are really beautiful and powerful and encouraging, um, and they can deepen our faith, a gift to the world. And I think that other traditions, too, that were born on the underside that were courageous enough to reinterpret the faith for themselves away from being a death-dealing faith to a, a life-giving and liberative faith, wherever that's happening We ought to be attuned and gleaning and learning from others. And then he pivots and tells me how his prayer life has changed during the pandemic. I actually have been more intentionally praying 
for shalom, for God's dream for us, that that would be realized, that I, I would be awakened to the idea, to what that means for my own community, and that I would struggle along others, alongside others for that. Uh, I guess it's the prayers to dream, <laughs> dangerous dreams, right? Subversive dreams um, that, that refuse to just acquiesce to the status quo. In Los Angeles, Varun Soni of USC prescribes a new old way of praying for the world. In my Hindu practice, we would go to temple every week and there would be a prayer opportunity for us to offer prayers for ancestors and family members. Maybe now we expand that. Maybe we offer prayers for first responders. We offer prayers for the people who are going through a lot of pain right now, the economic anxiety, those who have lost loved ones, etc. I think what this pandemic shows us is how interconnected we were. We can never again say that we're not living in a deeply interconnected world. The the reality is that uh, we are asking young people not to do certain things in order to save the lives of people they will never meet. That shows you how interconnected everything is. And so my sense is that, especially for young people who feel disconnected from each other, this can be an opportunity for them to understand that we're all in this interconnected web. And so whatever they might do, however they might reinterpret their traditions, um, honors that fact that we're interconnected, that we, we all, and, and so what does that mean? That means that your community becomes bigger, your prayer circle becomes bigger, the ritual becomes bigger. We don't just focus on our families, we focus on the global family in some way. We understand that that is also our family. And we imagine anew what that means for a new generation that was raised without that idea. So I think however people feel like they can interpret text or ritual, they should, because the themes within the text resonate in different ways and for different people um, in a different time. And so we can go back to old texts and find something new in them because the times are different and we're different. And he shared with me a spiritual practice drawn from yoga he learned from Ariana Huffington when she came to USC for a talk. It's called box breathing. It's pretty straightforward. It's sort of a four seconds of inhalation, four seconds of holding the breath, four seconds of exhalation, four seconds of holding the breath. So four cycles of four. She told me that um, this is what Navy SEALs do when they're stressed. So no matter how stressed we are, it should work for us. (laughs) Another spiritual practice Sony likes is walking in nature because it reminds him that we are all linked together in the good times and the bad. When we are communing with nature, when we are um, out by the beach or out in the mountains, um, we might be wearing a physical mask, but we don't have to wear our symbolic masks. That's when I don't have to be dean or father or husband or vice provost or professor or you know any of the things that I have to be during my course of my day. And so for me, communing with nature is a good way to understand that we are part of a larger universe. In many ways, we are the children of the stars that We are connected to a larger whole, that we can have awe and transcendence in our life, that we can reconnect with the moment in a non-judgmental way. At his Chicago synagogue, Rabbi David Wolkenfeld is focused on one particular ritual aspect of the Jewish calendar. In Judaism, the new day begins at sunset, but there is a nebulous shadow time between then and nightfall that he sees as a metaphor for life under COVID. 
in between sunset and nightfall is a kind of liminal time. It's in between. It's a time of doubt. It's a time of a little bit like the day that ends. That's ending. A little bit like the day that's coming. Uh, it's an in between status. It has some characteristics of the old day, some characters of the new day, and uh, you sort of don't have this instant, you know, click and one day ends and the new day begins. In Judaism, it, it has this this fading away of the old and, and then the ushering in uh, of the new. Uh, and um, and actually, when the community congregation starts its evening prayers, uh, that actually clicks, you know, the calendar time for the entire community. It's not so clean. It's not so neat. It's not so instant. There's a fading away and an ushering in that's gradual. And a lot of autonomy is given over to human beings to decide for ourselves, uh, okay, now we're ready for the new day to begin. So I would say if you want to expand that to a like this, this this broader experience that we are going through, there's a, um, a fading away of one situation we've been in and hopefully leading into something better and more hopeful, but it's not going to be instantaneous. It's going to be a, it's going to be an in- a long in-between time and slowly, slowly that in-between time will be less and less reminiscent of what came before and more and more reminiscent of what's coming next. In Baltimore, Reverend Emily Scott has also tuned into that mysterious division between night and day. In the spring, she began saying Vespers, an evening prayer service, via Zoom with the two Lutheran congregations she serves. I was sort of scrambling and thinking, you know, how are we going to support people through this? And so we started this Vespers service that very week to kind of say, there are these ancient words that we've been given that we can keep returning to. And it's amazing how those words that have been kind of passed down through history echoed in new ways in light of what we were going through. I mean, there's a very simple prayer for those who are sick and those who are suffering um, and those who care for them. Um, And that prayer was so poignant at the beginning of the pandemic. So the one that we say each week together is, oh God, you have called your servants to ventures of which we cannot see the ending by paths as yet untrodden through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Yeah. Is that something that you think you will continue in the new year and maybe even after we all get the shots and can go back to our, what do they call it, the before times? Yeah. You know, I keep sort of questioning if we ever will go back to the before times, I think, I think we've been kind of fundamentally changed by this. And I think it will kind of continue to unfold in ways that we haven't expected in terms of larger social change and cultural change. But I think that we will certainly keep praying Vespers through the end of the pandemic, if there is really an end. <laughs> um, it will certainly carry us through um, the winter in particular. You know, my, my concerns as a pastor have really been for congregants through the sort of shorter, darker, colder days of winter. And, you know, we know this is going to be a really tough one. So having that regular practice to lean on and those regular words to lean on, I think will be um, really vital for the congregation through the winter. It's a small group and we take time each week to have each person share how their week has been. And sometimes they, they talk about where they've seen God this week. So each person is listened to. And then afterwards we say, um, I say the person's name and I say, we hear you. And the whole group says your story is heard. And I think even, even just that sense of marking time and marking each week, having an ability to articulate, like this week was a little better than last week, or this week was really hard has been really important for some of our folks. 
And why do you think that's so? I think part of it is that it kind of feels like time has eroded (laughs) during the pandemic and um, all the days sort of feel the same. So to come back around to Wednesday night and know, you know, this is Vesper's night and to have that chance to stop and reflect for a moment and think like, well, where was I a week ago and um, how am I today? And to actually have that marked by the community that is close to you, you know, to have people kind of listen and hear that change, I think makes it more real um, and helps, yeah, helps market ritually. Sometimes I find like in times like these, we just need words, right? We don't know the words to pray. Becky Eldridge, the Catholic spiritual director from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, relies on a much less formal prayer, one from the mouth of St. Oscar Romero, the martyred Salvadoran priest. There was a moment where he was very overwhelmed with what he saw. He saw the poverty of his people, the people he was called to really speak on on their behalf and be an advocate for. But he was overwhelmed with the situation that, I mean, he knew, like, if I speak out, my life is at risk, right? And he ended up becoming a martyr, right? He ended up um, being killed for what he believed in. But his words are, I can't, you must, I'm yours, show me the way. I can't, you must, I'm yours, show me the way. And that's a prayer I think we can all pray right now. We don't know the full way. Whatever prayers, rituals, and practices get us through the new year and, hopefully, to something like normalcy, all our Roundup guests agreed on this, that organized religion, as we know it, will be changed. The pleasure of worshiping with fellow believers around the world via Zoom the ease of performing armchair pilgrimages through YouTube, and the joy of singing with great choirs on TikTok are not going to fall away easily. And that, they told me, is okay. More than okay. Change is part of the nature of faith. Here's Varun Soni. Faith is a journey. It's an evolution. It looks different every year. And over the last 20 years in the U.S., it's looked dramatically different. I mean, before the pandemic, we were already in a place where Um, There was a rapid rise of those who are not affiliated, the largest growing religious demographic in the country. I think we were already at a point where everything was already looking different. The pandemic has disrupted things in all sorts of areas, education, healthcare, um, the way we work, the way we play. Um, They will probably never go back to the way they were. And I think that's true with religion. I think there will be, in my opinion, a huge demand in in-person experience. So post-pandemic, people will flock to the kinds of in-person experiences that they couldn't have online. They will flock to sporting events. They will flock to concerts. They will flock to restaurants. They will travel the world. Does this mean they're going to flock back to houses of worship? I think the people who were already in houses of worship will flock back in larger numbers. Um, But I also think houses of worship, just like education, just like medicine, just like so many other industries, are also going to have to continue to be online places. People, in some ways, came to houses of worship during the pandemic because it was so easy for them to come to houses of worship during the pandemic. Those technologies that houses of worship have developed over the pandemic, the platforms, the apps, the video streaming, the the live streams, the tele-chaplaincy opportunities, I think we'll have to continue because people will expect to be able to engage services online. 
But I do think there's going to be an explosion of in-person activity across domains, including um, in houses of worship. And in some ways, listen, in some ways, what, what made the pandemic very real for people are two things. For, for me, it made it, it was very real when the NBA shut down. That's when sports shot, stopped. And the same week, the houses of worship shut down. So when sports and religion shut down, it became very real for people. That's when the pandemic was very real. And when sports and religion come back, that's when the end becomes very real. And so in many ways, religion has been a barometer for where we are and how we're feeling about this. And I think that will continue as we get past it. I want to thank our Roundup participants who were so generous with their time and their intellects. They were Rabbi Neil Blumoff, Senior Rabbi at Agudas Akim, a conservative temple in Austin, Texas. Becky Eldridge is the author of The Inner Chapel, and she leads Ignatian spirituality retreats from her base in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Drew Hart is a professor of theology at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and his new book is Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Emily Scott is a Lutheran pastor of two Baltimore congregations that include many LGBTQ persons and is the author of For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Varun Soni is the Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, whose books Natural Mystics looks at the prophetic lives of Bob Marley and Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. Rabbi David Wolkenfeld is the spiritual leader of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel, an Orthodox synagogue in Chicago. I'm Kimberly Winston. I wish you all a very happy and a healthy new year. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music, and to our guests this week who shared their time and their reflections. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy, Kimberly Winston, and I am your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Now, if you missed any portion of this broadcast and would like to take another listen and maybe even share with a friend, please visit interfaithradio.org or stream the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. And if you listen via podcast, I'd like to invite you to leave a review. It helps us and it helps listeners find our show. As I begin my third year behind the mic with you, I want to say thanks not only to the stations that carry us, but to our generous supporters and listeners for your feedback and your generosity. This year, we are hoping to launch a book club and we'd love to include you. We'd love to get your thoughts on the kind of books you'd like to read. And if you're up for joining me in a Zoom book club, it's been a tough year, one that has been lonely. And, you know, I'd like to see you. So go over to interfaithradio.org, sign up for our newsletter, and you'll receive special announcements, updates, and invitations to attend events. I hope you are well wherever you are. I hope you are safe. And I want you to stay connected. See you next week.